Welcome back to The New World Next Week. I'm James Corbett of CorbettReport.com. And I'm James Evan Pilato of MediaMonarchy.com. So much important information to get to on this latest installment of The New World Next Week. And of course, NewWorldNextWeek.com has everything you need. James, let's begin with the biggest election event in the world. More than 800 million Indians going to the polls over six weeks to elect a new government. The first phase of polling started back on April 7th. The ninth and last phase will be held on May 12th, and they will begin to count the votes on May 16th. But here in America, it's sports ball all the time, and you wouldn't know that the largest democratic exercise is, is happening across the globe. A bigger than ever reason to watch India's election, not only that they are so large and make up a fifth of the population of the world, but what it means to the bottom line. In 2005, India's gross domestic product calculated using purchasing power parity, which is a whole other story unto itself. In 2005, India was the 10th biggest economy in the world. In 2011, it leapt over Japan, Germany, and Russia to become the third biggest behind only the U.S. and China. That breathtaking bit of economic data announced by a statistical project, which there are PDF links for you, backed by the World Bank, suggests the importance of the next Prime Minister of India and the policies that he might implement. Nonetheless, as has been pointed out in scathing fashion by comedian John Oliver on his new HBO show last week tonight, Americans have, for the most part, been ignoring the largest democratic exercise on the planet. This despite a remarkable campaign in which presumed frontrunner Narendra Modi said earlier this month via 3D telecast, no doubt, that he was chosen by God for the task. James, this is a fascinating election, not only because of its its scale and, and length, even I find surprising. It's fascinating that it's basically a lot like here in America. It's a dynasty versus a personality cult. You have Gandhi, literally a Gandhi descendant, facing off against Modi, which I wish I could include all the bizarre kind of strange stories that connect to his occult leanings and connections and not only a cult of personality, but perhaps even a cult cult. So we'll include all those links for folks to check out and kind of explore that story. And James, another interesting one, because what would a week be without mentioning Russia? India turns to Russia to help supply arms to Afghan forces. James, I'll throw it back to you as you give us your take on these largest democratic operations. Well, I think that text that you read was right to locate the significance of this in the economic rise of India, because just as the uh, the puppet elections in the United States do nothing to change the real course of events in the United States, so too in in all of the other democracies of the world, including India. So the biggest um, ex democratic exercise on the planet is just the biggest political pageantry puppet show on the planet. I think the real um, power and 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 uh, the the string pullers are, of course, behind the scenes in the unelected positions, such as Raghuram Rajan, who was the, the appointed as the, the head of the India Reserve Bank last year during the whole Indian economic crisis. And who is this figure? Of course, he was an the chief economist at the IMF uh, from 2003 to 2007, and of course trained at the University of Chicago, one of the Chicago school boys, um, where I'm sure he uh, rubbed elbows with a lot of the neocons and other people in the, in the positions of uh, financial power in the United States. And uh, and wouldn't you know it, lo and behold, uh, this out from LiveMint.com, Raghuram Rajan's job safe if Narendra Modi wins election as expected. So 
So again, I think the real power is uh, behind the scenes and not located in the ballot box. Again, they wouldn't give people the ballot box if it really changed anything of significance. And on that very note, I know you have uh, in the relateds here, votes amid violence, Iraq's national elections explained, talking about the Iraqi vote, which again, I think is not going to solve anything for a number of reasons, one of which comes from almonitor.com, Iraqi elections marred by hit squads targeting candidates, which is probably not a sign that, you know, it's, it's a free and open and fair election, even if that was going to change anything, which it isn't, because it's often been noted in the alt-media that the whole plan with the whole neocon plan of uh, uh, Iraq was to break the country up into sectarian fighting factions along the uh, lines of the Israeli Oded Yunon plan, but it's not often talked about how that was done. And in fact, this goes back to a concept called muhasasa, which in Arabic means literally quota, uh, uh, quota sharing. But in the Iraqi national context, it was this policy that was instituted when Paul Bremer was government governor to basically put quotas on, on all sorts of different national uh, offices so that there'd have to be a certain percentage of Shiites, Sunnis, Yazidi, and Christians. There'd have to be a certain uh, ratio of, of Arabs to, uh, to Kurds, to Turkmen. And uh, it was all divided up along ethnic and religious lines. And it's baked into the cake and has been for a very long time. So that continues to be sort of the nexus the, the, of what uh, Iraqi politics is about. And now we see the renewed uh, Sunni insurgency uh, you know, along the Syrian border. And so, again, it has been completely broken up. It is a government in name only in many respects. And uh, mission accomplished for the neocons who got exactly what they wanted out of that, regardless of what happens at the ballot box in Iraq or India or any anywhere else where supposedly democracy in the ballot box is going to somehow bring goodies and uh, sunshine and rainbows to the populace. Good note on uh, mission accomplished there, James, as we are just now entering the anniversary of George Bush's mission accomplished speech. Yes, it is May Day, May Day, and, and as we are recording this in the early hours of May, who knows what sort of ritual-like May Day event may unfold as, as you're already watching this later. But James, one other note, you also mentioned the IMF. They were busy today announcing $7 billion for Ukraine, which... What could possibly go wrong there? Let's move to our second story this week, James, coming from Reuters and posted to my own foodworldorder.com. Superbugs that overpower antibiotics spreading. The spread of deadly superbugs that evade even the most powerful antibiotics is no longer a prediction, but is happening right now across the world, United Nations officials said on Wednesday. That would be April 30th. Antibiotic resistance has the potential to affect anyone of any age in any country, the UN's World Health Organization said in a report. It is now a major threat to the public health, and the implications will be devastating. We have a big problem now, and all of the trends indicate the problem is going to get bigger, said Kiji Fukuda, the WHO's Assistant Director General for Health Secretary, Security, rather. In its first global report on antibiotic resistance, which is why this is garnering the headlines, it's the first time they've done this kind of report, with data from 114 countries, the WHO said superbugs able to evade even the hardest-hitting antibiotics, a class of drugs called carpenibums, have now been found in all regions of the world. Quote, the world is headed for a post-antibiotic era in which common infections and minor injuries which have been treatable for decades can once again kill, Fukuda said. 
Drug resistance is driven by the misuse and overuse of antibiotics, which encourages bacteria to develop new ways of overcoming them. So we will give you the links to the WHO's full report with PDFs and, and all that stuff, James. The two things I would think and, and also mention that, that actually the Reuters article mentions is the now unstoppable plague of gonorrhea spreading all over the world. And also think about this when you talk about Monsanto's Roundup and pesticides and that you need a bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger fix to still do anything. James. Well, that that's uh, so worrying because uh, speaking of overuse and misuse of antibiotics, here I am in Japan, which, I mean, a place where they pretty much give antibiotics out as candy um, for any sniffle or cough. Um, because it's just expected. If you go to the doctor, of course, they've got to give you something. And uh, that's pretty worrying. And um, part of that is exactly, you, you note the, uh, the drug-resistant gonorrhea that's now spreading around the world. That actually originated in Japan in 2011. Surprise, surprise. So, uh, so definitely it is a worrying trend. But um, am I the only one who's worried that the World Health Organization, the, the body that uh, admittedly, I mean, through investigations, there's no doubt they, they raised the, the, uh, the, the panic over the the uh, swine flu a couple of years ago in order to scare up funds for the vaccine manufacturers whose representatives and and uh, associated people were sitting on the board of the WHO panel that recommended the pandemic, blah, blah, blah. I think we know how that incestuous circle works. Is, is it anyone else worried when the WHO comes out and, and says, oh, you know, now there's going to be these new bugs that can kill people even from minor injuries? I mean, that... <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm being paranoid, but it sounds like a threat to me, and uh, and I I'm not exactly sitting back and waiting for the WHO to come along and save us all from this superbug phenomenon. I thought you were going to say something about cholera in Haiti, but no. There's any number of things to mention. The thing I would even think of, James, and we've seen it a lot. I don't know if it if it's the same way all around the world, but over the last ten years, the obsessive use of hand sanitizer. Oh, my God, I touched a doorknob. I need to hand sanitize. Meanwhile, I'll drink a bunch of aspartame GMO crap. It's thing that always kind of blows my mind. So having said that, James, unless you have any other, other thoughts on that, we'll move to our third and final story this week, which in lieu of a good news segment, perhaps sometimes it'll just be something kind of strange. Is porn really so high risk that porn stars shouldn't have bank accounts? The Department of Justice, and we use the term loosely, they have something called Operation Choke Point, and that might be at the root of porn star bank account closings. This coming from Reason, the hit-and-run blog. Despite being in good financial standing, adult film performers and others in the porn industry have had bank accounts abruptly terminated, and the U.S. Department of Justice, DOJ, may have had something to do with it. Under Operation Choke Point... The DOJ and its allies are going after legal but subjectively undesirable business ventures by, pres by pressuring banks to terminate their accounts or just refuse their business. The very premise is clearly chilling. The DOJ is coercing private businesses in an attempt to centrally engineer the American marketplace based on its own politically biased moral judgments. Targeted business categories so far have included payday lenders, ammunition sales, dating services, purveyors of drug paraphernalia, and online gambling sites. 
Quote, Operation Chokepoint is flooding payment companies that provide processing service to those industries with subpoenas, civil investigative demands, and other burdensome and costly legal demands, wrote Jason Oxman, who's the CEO of the Electronic Transaction Action Association. He was writing for TheHill.com. So down to the street level of this. Last week, adult film actress Tegan Presley had an unknown num- and an unknown number of others in the porn industry all receive notices that their Chase bank accounts were being abruptly terminated. Vice News reported, quote, when Presley went to the bank in person to ask why, she was told it's because she's considered high risk. Vice Magazine's Mary O'Hara was the first actually to note the likely link between the porn bank account closings and Operation Chokepoint. The DOJ did not respond to Vice News' request for comment, and it's fascinating and funny and strange topsy-turvy world that we live in that outlets like Vice are actually exposing the, the misdoings of the DOJ, which of course have a long, long, illustrious history of misdoings. James? You know, I got to hand it to the U.S. governmental tyranny because just when I think there's not a story that could possibly come along that would that would surprise me anymore. Um, well, I'm not sure this one necessarily surprises me, but again, it just ups the ante even further. Now, closing down bank accounts of people who are doing nothing illegal, uh, just insanity, absolute insanity. And the fact that people are going to watch this and allow it to happen because, hey, it's porn stars, you know, we don't care. Um it's just disgusting. I don't. I couldn't care less what your ethical stance on pornography is, but if you do not stand up for people like this in situations like this, it will come home to roost for you. That is the whole point of history. We've heard this story so many times. We know this from many different contexts. People who are not aware of this are simply going to sleepwalk into tyranny, and unfortunately, a lot of people are going to do so because why stand up for the you know the porn stars or the drug paraphernalia sellers or other evil doers of our society it's, uh, it's just it's disgusting and it's disgusting to see it operating in a way that is clearly designed to just push that boundary in a way that most people will sit back and let it happen so what uh, if if the problem is they're shutting down the bank accounts of these people even though they're doing nothing illegal what do you think is going to be the solution james that's even uh, my gears were turning just now and i even kind of think you know man if if the sex and drug industries could actually extricate themselves from so-called government, they could actually pretty much run run their own biz in the world and cut out that evil middleman and or, just yeah. sex and drugs to the people. Exactly. Or if not, get get <laughs> get out of government, at least get out of the financial banking sector, which That's is, of it. course, completely regulated, controlled, and perched over by the DOJ and all of these people who are in the back pockets of Wall Street anyway. So it's another big incestuous circle. But yes, you have to get off of the financial system that they use to control you, which uh, controls all of the, the, the money supply itself. And uh, how do you do that? Well, again, there's a million different ways, but uh, we just talked to Roger Veer about Bitcoin and uh, getting off of the, the, the monetary grid that way. And there are many, many, many others. I don't advocate one of them. I advocate all of them. Um, anything you can do to get your uh, money out of this financial system that they can admittedly close down your account without you even doing anything illegal. That is insanity. So, James, let's begin to wrap this episode up with some New World Next Week updates coming from folks on Twitter using hashtag New World Next Week, and it segues quite nicely, and whether or not this is or is not directly connected, there's obviously something rotten in the state of financial institutions. 
Update on stories we've been following over the last few weeks and even a couple of months. Suspicious deaths of bankers are now called classified as trade secrets by federal regulator. That on Twitter by our good friend at Brock West. And the dead banksters suicide updates. I believe we are up to numbers 29 and 30 as at Daz Alt Theory gives us an article to break down, I think, pretty much one through 30 of the bankster suicides. Meanwhile, cryptographers lose, lose confidence in NIST over their close relationship with the NSA. The Obama administration argues in favor of the right to fire employees who testify at corruption trials. News about quantitative easing, James, and Assad and chemical weapons, the United Nations promoting, and, and the aforementioned WHO, promoting a app to track your kids' vaccines to make sure they don't miss any of their jabs. But let's wrap it up by shining a little bit of light and a couple of good news notes using hashtag good news next week, which is admittedly a new thing again that we're trying. And I think it's, it's only a positive thing. And the, the response has been, has been really positive as well. Two good news next week updates, one from JG Salisbury, the other from Pippa underscore King Google halts student Gmail advertisement scans and Florida bans biometrics in their schools. So, James, having done all of that, again, I'll remind folks to check out NewWorldNextWeek.com to get links and sources and audio and video for all the things we cover on these episodes. That's it. So, uh, well, that's going to do it once again. James, always a pleasure. Looking forward to next week. All right, man. Thanks.